You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on his yoke. We are pressing into his promise of true life. Well, peace be with you. And also with you. Um, will you stand with me if you're able? Um, and if you're, if, you're, if you're able, please stand We'll go for the reading of God's Word. We're going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at Matthew chapter 12. We're looking at, uh, starting in verse 15, looking at a couple of verses here um, as we continue in this great series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew 15 begins with these words. It says, Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 18, here is my servant whom I have chosen, my delight in whom, and my beloved, excuse me, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering, smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Amen. This, um, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please uh, pray with me as you take your seat. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have to, to hear and to learn from your word once again. Father, I do pray that you would make what seems to um, not make sense in the sex or seem to maybe be even complex, make it simple, make it plain. We thank you, God, that your word always goes forth and it does not come back void. May some soul be saved, some, may some mind be transformed for the advancement of your kingdom. God, as always, use the little bit I ha- what I have and make much of it. Um, that's the only thing I can ask, Lord. So do that for, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I have uh, a secret to share with you guys, a good secret uh, in a good way, is that I love movies. Um, and I know Pastor Appreciation just went by in October, um, but some of you missed your opportunities to take me to the movies. <laughs> but let me tell you what type of movies I like. I don't like just any type of movie. I love movies that have a, a, a very good twist, a very good kind of plot twist in the middle of it where you just can't figure it out. If you take me to a movie where I can know what's going to happen in the very end at the beginning, that's not a good movie to me because I'm the type of person, that I, like my daughter, she likes to um, read the beginning and the end of the book um, to figure out the whole thing, what's in the middle. I'm the same way. I'm guessing, I'm thinking, and I really want to know what's going to happen. Um, I love these movies. And I went on Netflix this week. And I went up to type in um, this simple phrase. I said, give me the, the top, uh, the best, t- uh, what is it? Give me the best movies with a plot twist on Netflix. And some of those movies, unfortunately, I, I don't feel comfortable sharing with you um, <laughs> from this pulpit. So I'm not going to share those with you. Uh, but here's, a, movie, here's a, uh, a show that actually I've been enjoying watching and I want to share with you. Maybe you know this show. If you see the tagline, anybody know what this is? The Good Place. Yes, it's a great movie. I'm not going to, my old pastor in New Jersey, he used to always ruin movies. I'm not going to ruin, ruin it for you um, and tell you what the, what the twist is, but there's a great twist at the end of season one. So check it out. NBC will send me some royalties for telling you about that. <clears throat> but it's a great show. I love it. It has a great twist. I'm not going to tell you what that twist is, but does anybody want to tell me the twist? 
No? Okay, that's all right. Don't tell me to twist. That's all right. If you want to know, come talk to me at the church. <clears throat> in our text today, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Matthew experience the, a, a significant plot twist. Um, he is coming up to the point where he is starting to understand who Jesus is and who he has pro- proclaimed himself to be. If you don't remember, a couple of weeks ago, we heard from Kevin that Jesus is um, our, our authoritative judge. He is the one who has the right to judge us before the very throne room of God. After that, we heard about Jesus being a sovereign son, that he is the one who uniquely knows God, and he is the one that it can exclusively reveal God to others. We've seen him as a gracious master, and Pastor Nick last week showed us that Jesus is not just a gracious master, but he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who actually embodies, and he is the one that actually invites us to his Sabbath rest each and every day of our lives. And Matthew, as any good uh, disciple is, he's getting excited. He's starting to get the pieces together. He's starting to understand exactly who Jesus proclaims himself to be. But then there's a twist. Look with me in verse 15. It says, Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. So let's stop right there. What is this talking about? Jesus was aware of this. Jesus was aware of what happened in verse 14. Look look with me on the screen at verse 14, what it says here. It says at the end of verse 14, or it's beginning of verse 14, it says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. The great theologian, um, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, um, who was a Felder uh, elder at, a, at church in um, Midtown East, he says that this verse, Matthew 12, 14, is the hinge point of the gospel of Matthew. Because before Matthew 12, 14, Jesus has shown us who he is in a very explicit way. He's been upfront about who he is and what he's done. He's been upfront about his miracles. He's been very, very candid and very straightforward about the person and nature of who he is and who God has, who God has revealed himself to be through him. But at Matthew 12, 14, we get a different Jesus. Jesus no longer is being explicitly showing who he is. He's now doing it more in an implicit way. And we'll see that in the coming sermons after this Sunday in what we call parables. Why does Jesus go from this, 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 this uh, person who is explicitly letting us know who he is to this person who simply becomes this implicit and seemingly maybe even cowardice person who was, who's withdrawing from the crowd? This confuses Matthew and it should confuse us a little bit too. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation with God where God has done something that just seems confusing. It just doesn't make sense. It it, it doesn't um, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It it seems like God is maybe um, you want God to push you forward. It seems like he's pushing you backwards. You want God to exalt you. And it seems like he's pushing you down or causing more more oppression to come into your life. You want to be healed, but you have more days of, of, of unhealth than, than, than of wholeness. You want to be financially free, but you continue to have bills unpaid and continue to have bur- financial burdens that just seems to come out of nowhere. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but Matthew's in that situation. And I love what Matthew does. Matthew does something that we all should do. Matthew goes to the word of God. 
there are three things that we need to know about God. Is that in order to know God's will, you first have to know God's word. And you have to know God's word because as you know God's word, then you'll know God's ways. And as you know God's ways, then you'll know his will. We'll see this, unpack, he'll unpack this for us in our text today. Matthew doesn't just come up with some figurative, figurative explanation of why God is doing what he's doing. He goes to the very word and listen what he does. He interprets, he interprets scripture by the word of scripture. He's, he interprets the, the word made flesh by the word provided in the Torah. I love that because if God is true, if he is true, then he should be able to be affirmed by the truth that should affirm him. So look with me specifically in verse 15. It says, Jesus was aware of this and he withdrew. But notice this. The next verse sentence says this, large crowds followed him and he healed them all. So here's Matthew. He's seeing what's happening. Jesus was withdrawing. He doesn't know exactly why yet. Matthew, again, has the, um, we have the wonderful aspect of seeing Matthew contemplating through the, through the um, instruction and the tutoring of the Holy Spirit to rewrite his experiences under the authority of God's Spirit. But at this, at this time, Matthew is wondering, like, hey, what is going on? I see that Jesus is withdrawing, but notice what also is happening. Large crowds follow him and heal them all. This is a good reminder for us. That as Jesus followed God, the people followed him. This reminds us of the blessing and obscurity of obedience. I don't know if you know about this, but there are many characters in the Bible who know about the blessing and the obscurity of obedience. Abraham knew it well. Genesis 12, God called Abraham to follow him. And he says, follow me on the way to a place I'm going to show you along the way. I'm not going to tell you exactly where you're going, Abraham, but just follow me. As you were being led by me, Moses knew a whale as well in Exodus three. He had to go despite his excuses. He was a man who had stuttering, a, stutter, a stuttering problem, and he was supposed to lead God's people out of Exodus and face the most powerful king in that, in that era to tell him face to face that God said, let my people go. He did the same thing with Gideon in Judges seven, who he had actually, his problem was that he didn't have enough people. His problem was that he had too many people. And God told him to reduce the number of people so that they will know that I'm the, I, Yahweh God is the one who saved you and not you yourself. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where God does things that just doesn't seem to add up. It seems like he's, he's actually, you want him to bless you and it seems like he's cursing you. But this is where Matthew is. And Matthew not just not only sees this problem, he talks about it in this text. Notice what he says in verse 16. Not only did Jesus withdrew, but notice what also Jesus did. He warned them not to make him known. He warned them not to make him known. He, he tells them, listen, as he is killing, now notice what he says here. <clears throat> as Matthew, as, as Jesus withdrew himself, the people follow. This lets us know that Jesus didn't have some type of secret uh, withdrawing from the, the public. Jesus actually, uh, they saw where he went and they chose to follow him. It's a good reminder for every leader that's sitting in this um, under the sound of my voice right now that as we follow God as leaders, the people will follow you if you are being led by God. I love this because Jesus follows the father's leading. Even when it doesn't make sense, 
Even when no one else can comprehend, Jesus follows the Father's leading in his life. And he is withdrawing, and he's telling people not to make him known. And the reason why he's telling him not to make him known is because Jesus does not want any undue publicity. He wants, he wants to quietly accomplish the work of Christ without fuss or without publicity. And notice what he's doing. He's not just healing some people. He's healing all people without failure and without, without, um, without exceptions. I love this about Jesus. There's no failure in his healing. There's no failure in what he's doing. If, 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 if he, he probably is the only one, he is the only one at this time who deserves the limelight, but he actually goes away from it. And he doesn't heal only some people. He doesn't only heal the people from the household of uh, Israel. He doesn't only heal Gentiles. He heals all people without exception. Notice what Matthew's what Matthew's choice is. He goes to the word, verse 17. He says, he warned them not to make him known, verse 17, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. I love this. Again, Matthew goes to the word of God to explain, to explain um, the, the word made flesh. He goes to the word. He says, yes, I remember this. I remember what was spoken about the Messiah. Even does it, though it doesn't make sense right now, let me go back to the word and remember what God has said about the Messiah. And he finds himself in Isaiah 42 at this particular verse. This verse right here is the longest quotation that Matthew uses from the Old Testament. So this is not just some quotation that he uses. This is a pinnacle point in which Matthew really puts A and B together that Jesus, even though he's not doing what I would expect him to do, even, he would, even though he's not doing what I, I myself would want him to do, he is truly the Messiah um, sent by God, the Son of God sent by God. Notice what this this psalm says, uh, this, this uh, Isaiah, this prophecy says about the Messiah, starting in verse 18. Notice the, the personal pronoun, um, my and I, in this. He says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, in whom my beloved, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. I love this. He says, here is my servant whom I chose My beloved, whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. If verses 15 and 16 reminds us that Jesus always follows the Father's leading, verses 17 and 18 lets us know that God always takes the initiative. He always takes an initiative in every aspect of our life. Listen to what he says, my servant I chose. He chose him. The, ch- the, the choice of Jesus here is a chosen, uh, chosen for a special task. He was chosen by God for the mission of God in order to redeem, the, and, to redeem and to accomplish the purpose of God in the world. He says, my beloved, this word beloved is only used three times in the gospel of Matthew and every single time is used of Jesus. He says, my beloved, in whom another translation says, my soul is well pleased, or in this translation it says, in whom I delight in, or whom I delight. I love this because it reminds us that, shows us that Jesus is truly the servant of God, and a servant always is equated to being lowly, to being lowly, to being humble. 
You see, Jesus, as a servant of God, he alone is pleasing to the Father. And not only is he pleasing to the Father, he alone is perfectly and fully under the fluence of God's Holy Spirit. Amen? But here's the kick, and here's the twist. What's true about Jesus is also true about you. The same words that that God uses to express his love for Jesus, these are the exact same words that he uses to express his love for you as his child. In our community groups at our church right now, we're going through Colossians 3, 12 through 17. And this is a good verse. I love this verse. It's a great verse, but I love how that verse starts. It starts this way. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice that what, what God calls us to, he calls us to understand our identity before he tells us what to do. He says, before you try to put on meekness and kindness and humility and all and patience, before you try to dress yourself with the adornment of exterior, uh, exterior morality, know who you are. Before you, are, before you are told what to do. You are chosen ones. You are holy, meaning that not your, you're not perfect. You're set, you're set apart for a holy use, and you are beloved. I love this because this reminds us that God's affirmation and God's approval always should be um, the prerequisite to our service and sacrifice for him. God doesn't call you just to pour out your life in service and sacrifice in a tedious way. God calls you to service and sacrifice knowing your identity is found in him. You are chosen. You are beloved. I know you don't feel like it. I know you haven't. You, you, I know the, what, what you did maybe this morning trying to get here to church. I know the argument y'all just had. I get it. But you are chosen and you are beloved. I know how the, the sin struggle that you're struggling with. I get that. I understand that. I understand what you did to your spouse this week. That, yeah, you got to ask forgiveness and take her out to dinner. I get that. But you are chosen and you are beloved. Church, let that sink in. Let that sink in. You are chosen. Not because of what you do. Not because of how you act, not because of what you think, or not because of what you wear. You are chosen because Christ was first chosen in God to redeem the world for sin that we all are susceptible and have done. We are chosen because Christ, God has chosen his son to die in the place for guilty sinners so that we may find our freedom in him. Church, what I want more than anything is I want us to be a church that identifies with this, that we are chosen and that we are beloved. I'm not asking you to memorize these scriptures just because I have nothing else to do. I'm asking you to memorize these scriptures because it's important to our identity as a church. I'm asking you to memorize your scripture because I want our children whom we love, whom we just saw lined up here, I want to see them pay, I want to see you as parents leading out of a place of identity and not just out of a place of performance. That's my heart. That's why we do what we do. Because identity always precedes function. God never calls you to do more for him than he's willing to do for you. And the the way I know that is because God always reminds you of who you are before he tells you what to do. We're really good on the what to do, aren't we? We're really good on that. 
We, we forget about the identity and just get things done. Be efficient. It's not about efficiency. It's about identity. It's about identity. These words that Jesus, that God speaks over Jesus, he also speaks over you. I love what um, I'm, I'm reading a book right now with Pastor Nick, Faith Mapping. And, that, and it's a great quote from that book that I want to share from you. It says this. It says, apart from God's liberating love, we're destined to make our lives and service about ourselves. We are in constant service to something because God has wired us to be his servants. Our quest for affirmation are an attempt to fulfill a God-given purpose and desire. Life apart from him is an endless attempt to validate our broken souls, a relentless and fruitless effort of self-service. We wallow in self-service in grasping attempts to climb some individual social ladder, but it's never enough. This is the world in which Jesus came. It's a self-congratulatory power jockeying place. He came with the full approval of the Father, laying aside glory and demonstrating a radical freedom to serve, which is revealed as a far more satisfying way to live. It's a good word right there. It's a good word. We see this in Jesus, that not only um, did Jesus follow his Father's commands, but we also see that God's divine's choice of Jesus and us as his servant. Notice in verses 19 through 20, Jesus' divine character. He says this about Jesus. He says, he will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. I love this because it reminds us of the character. Remember what we said earlier? If you want to know the will of God, you first know God's word, to know God's ways, to know God's will. So we've seen God's word. Matthew went to Isaiah 42. He was reminded of the word, and now he's being reminded of the ways. This is a good reminder for all of us that our representation matters to God. Amen? I'll never forget when I first came here to, to candidate for this church. And I had all these questions I had to go through. And you, I, I know I'm in the state of Kentucky because this is one question that came up. Which one are you? <laughs> Which one am I? Who are you going to support? Are you red or are you blue? <clears throat> I'm red. I, I'll, sh- I'll share. I, I, at that time, I was indecisive. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, I, I was, uh, I, I'm red. I'm red because I live in Louisville. And, yeah, I, like, I, want, I, want, it. I want them to do well. Uh, and I think they're, they're a better team. <clears throat> I digress. <clears throat> but I never forget that. Which one are you? Are you red or you blue? Because guess what? Our representation matters. I can't say I just said this publicly. I'm a Louisville fan. So if I come in here next week in blue, Noah's going to call me out as a Kentucky fan. You should call me out, by the way, if I do that. You're going to call me out. Maybe punch me, in the, punch me in the arm, maybe. I don't know. Um. Our representation matters. It matters. And what I love about Jesus is that Jesus is the exact representation of God. He shows us the character and nature of God as being the the one who has been sent by him, full of the spirit, 100% man, 100% God, and 100% true to the character and nature of God. Notice what he says at the very beginning. There's, there's three things we want to know about Jesus' character. The first one is this, is that he will be peaceful. Look with me in verse 19. He will not argue or shout. 
What is this talking about? Another version can say he will not quarrel. This means that Jesus' mission is one of peace. Now, let me, let me say this because I think it's very important for us. <clears throat> Jesus isn't just some weakling. It's not saying that Jesus excuses sin. What it's saying is that Jesus will oppose evil, but he will not oppose his enemies. He will not force himself or argue his point in order that someone may come to an understanding of who he is. This is why verse 14 is the pivotal point of Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, that Jesus withdrew because he knew that they were going to kill him. And he knew that from that point on, it was on. And if he stayed in front of these people, then he would have to be, he would have to argue his point. He will always be trying to debating who he is. So he withdrew. But even in his withdrawal, notice what happens. The people still follow. The blessing of God is still evident. The healing of all is still happening because Jesus is who he says he is and who he proclaims to be. I love this, that he will not quarrel or he will not argue or shout because it helps us to know that he will not argue or force people to his views. He will not impose his will on anyone of everyone, regardless of their desire. Jesus is, is, a, is not one who will impose his view on you despite your rejection of him. But not only that, look at verse 19. He says, he will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. So not only will he be peaceful, but he also will be pious. He will do his work quietly. He will make no loud claims to underline his importance. He will, his work will be done without noise and without publicity. And therefore, in verse 15, we see he withdraws. I love this about Jesus because I don't think, I don't, well, I don't know. I'm, I'll, I'll take, put myself, I don't, I don't think Jesus be on Twitter and Facebook and trying to get people to, to do that. That's what he got us for, the church. We can do that. But I don't think Jesus would do that. He didn't need to. The, the prophecy about him is that he will not argue, he will not shout, no one will hear his voice in the streets. Because he wants to make sure that the focus is not upon him, but it's upon the God he serves. I love this because it reminds us, again, that representation matters. But as Jesus is representing God through his character, we also should represent Jesus in our character. I I came from Princeton University and uh, most recently and uh, at Princeton, man, I I dealt with this a lot. We had a lot of people who meant well. And they would come on the street corners of our university with these huge signs and banners saying to our students and yelling to them, talking about them going to hell and um, not being saved and all this stuff. Now, listen to me. I'm all about the proclamation of the gospel. I believe in hell. Hell is a literal place uh, designed and set up for those who have rejected and will have rejected, will continue to reject uh, Jesus until their death, their intimate death. That is true. But listen, we're not called just to preach a gospel. We're called to embody the gospel. We, we, we are not called just to yell at people and shout at them for the wrong things they do, say, think, feel. We are called to embody the gospel just as Jesus has given us a great model of, um, of, 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 by, um, of, of, of by having the gospel abide in us and exemplify and embody the gospel. I I would rather see us as a church. I would rather see us as a church embody the gospel 
than preach and, and proclaim a gospel that's antithetical to the, the Jesus that we proclaim. Embody it. Live it. And even as we had these little babies, these beautiful babies up here, you know what's going to help them see Jesus more than anything? It's not coming to church every Sunday. That's a part of it. But it's living it out before them, showing them, giving them grace when they don't deserve it, giving them mercy when they, don't, they, they can't earn it. Living the life of Jesus before our children is the greatest ministry we can do before them. Nothing more, nothing less. And if we don't do it, here's what our children get. They get confused because they hear mama and daddy saying something on Sunday, but then during the week they see a whole different side of mommy and daddy that's just so different for the Jesus that they proclaimed during the week. Now listen, I'm not throwing condemnation at you because I'm the first one to tell you I'm I'm no perfect parent. I'm growing in grace and knowledge every day. If I, had my, if I was brave enough, I'll let you, my, my 11-year-old share that with you, but I'm not brave enough. She'll probably share all too much dirt. Y'all be like, he did what? What did your daddy do? Notice the last thing. We not, he, Jesus is not only peaceful, he's not only pious, but notice this, he's also patient. This, this is what I need from King Jesus more than anything. I need King Jesus to be patient with me because I make mistakes. Do you make mistakes? Yeah, we, we all make mistakes. And this is what I love. Jesus, Matthew takes the most, <laughs> the most typical thing in our society to show the beauty, of, of, the beauty of Jesus' patience with us. Notice what he says in verse 20. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. What is this talking about? A reed was a device, was an instrument used in that time that can be used for many different things. It became used as a flute. A measuring rod, it could be used as a pen. A, 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 a reed was what could be synonymous to a, a pen, pens that we use today, right? We all have our special pens, but when you need a pen, you just need a pen. Like, just give me a pen to write with. I don't care what kind of pen you give me. Um, just, just give me something to write with. A reed was similar to that. They grew plentiful and they were cheap, and it was natural and even expected to disres- disregard an imperfect reed and replace it with a better one. Even perfect reeds at their best were fragile. And what this helps us to know and to understand is that Jesus draws close to those in their weakness and to those who are um, helpless. It helps us to see, as verse 20 says, he will not break a bruised reed. This was commonplace. If you have a pen that doesn't write or is not writing properly, what do you do? You scribble with it for a few, few times, and if it doesn't work, you just throw it away. You get rid of it. It's useless. This is a good reminder for us that Jesus takes seemingly useless things and makes them useful. He will not break a bruised reed. He will will be patient with us in our brokenness. He, He won't discard you because of your weakness. He won't put you aside because you can't keep up with being efficient and being, being um, the, the, the best Christian that you can be. He won't despise you because of your weakness before him love this. This reminds us of his patience with us. But not only that, notice what he says. Secondly, he will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. A smoldering wick was a wick that would just kind of flash on and off. A good example in our day of time would be a light in your house that continues to flash on and off and look like Stranger Things. That's that's another crazy movie, but I like that movie. That was a good good twist at the end. Um, I'm giving y'all all all my good movies. I'm sorry. Um, 
Stranger Things had this little thing about the flickering lights. Don't, don't go see it if you don't like scary movies. Um, but it's like that. It's like that. It's like that flickering light that's flickering all the time. You, it's just a nuisance. It's like, man, somebody change that light. I don't want that thing flickering on and off and on and off. Jesus is saying that he's patient with us even in our imperfection. He, the the, the pro- most popular thing to do for a, a smoldering wick is to snuff it out and throw it away. Just to put the, put the flame out and just throw it away, disregard it. But again, Jesus makes seemingly useless things useful. I love this about Jesus. I love this about Jesus because he reminds us of the character of God. It reminds us that our God loves us because he loves us. He, he, he is for us and he pursues us, not because we are so worthy of his pursuit of us. He, 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 he pursues us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our disgust, in our uh, vile hearts that, that, that pour out things that come out of our mouth that are just, just horrible to hear. But yet God pursues us and he loves us. The characteristics of Jesus in this, in, this, uh, in this passage are threefold. One, he's peaceful. If you need peace right now, Jesus is, is the best place to go. He's the most, most efficient peacemaker there is. He will not quarrel. Number two, he's pious. He's upright. He's altogether lo- lovely. He is devoted. And lastly, he is patient. He is patient with us, even in our seemingly uselessness before him. This reminds us, um, the third point, the first point was that Jesus is the servant of God. The last point we see here in verse 21 is that Jesus is also the servant of sinners. Look with me in verse 21. It says, the nations will put their hope in his name. The nations will put their hope in his name. I love this because this is the one only time in the Gospel of Matthew, nations is not referring to Gentiles. Normally, when we see nations, we think of ethnos. We think of those who are non-Jewish, but this is not what it's referring to right here. Matthew gets the picture. He says, oh my gosh, the word of God, the Messiah from Isaiah 52 is Jesus. And Jesus is going to be peaceful, he's going to be pious, and he's going to be patient. And that's what he's doing right now. And he's doing that not just for me or just for us. He's doing that so, verse 21, the will of God can come true, that the nations will put their hope in his name. That's just why we exist as a church. There's no greater reason. There's no greater reason why we come and gather and we hear the preached word of God each and every week. There's no greater reason for us to exemplify the character and nature of God. The why do we do what we do as Christians? It's because of verse 21, so that the nations will put their hope in his name. I hope that makes you excited. It makes me excited. He's not talking about Gentiles here. What he's talking about is he's talking about the nations of the world as a whole. So many of us get it wrong when we think about the nations. Israel got it wrong because they thought the law could provide them salvation. And today, other cults get it wrong. Jehovah Witnesses get it wrong because they say 144,000 will be saved. That's not true because the nations will put their hope in his name. 
Black Hebrew Israelites and even white nationalists will say, well, it's all about your ethnic, your ethnic superiority. That if you are a certain race or if you're a certain ethnicity, then you are a chosen people by God. They got it wrong, too, because the nations will put their hope in the name of God, name of Jesus. We gather so that the nations will put their hope. And if you can look around this room, I, you will see some. I wish you could see it from my perspective right now. But I see the beauty. I see the presence of the nations standing right here. I see the nations. The nations coming before him, putting their hope, putting their trust in Jesus as their only one and Savior. This is a good reminder for us that he, Jesus, will preserve to bring justice to an unjust world. God's servant, he will preserve to the very end, and he will be faithful to bring justice. To whom? To the nations. This is really important because it, it says this a couple of different times in the text, that Jesus will bring justice. Verse 18 at the end, he will proclaim justice to the nations. The end of 21, uh, excuse me, the end of 20, uh, until he has led justice to victory. What is this justice that he's talking about? It's quite simple. Jesus will bring justice in light of God's impending judgment. See, there could be no justice without judgment. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that God is not just the one who pronounces judgment over us because of our sin. He's also the justifier who lends himself graciously to be the one to die for that sin that he didn't create or he didn't even want to exist. What kind of ju justice is he talking about? He's talking about the good news of God's kingdom. Why justice? Because it's a, we, we deserve a judgment on those who reject him, who reject the son of God. And how will we experience this justice? We will see and experience Jesus as who he is, which is God's servant, the one sent by God for the people of God to be paid with the ransom that God demands for us to be free. I love what the Puritan pastor Richard Scribe says in his book, The Bruised Read. He says this, uh, talking about Isaiah 42.3. He says, are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him. Go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. It's a good word and a good reminder for us this morning that Jesus is not just a servant of God, but Jesus is the servant of sinners. He is the hope for the hurting. He comes to the bruised and the battered whose flame is, is flickering out and provides support. He is meek and a gentle savior. He comes to the spiritually broken, those who are bruised by sin and all his effects that they're unable to stand under. And he provides support. This is our God, the servant of God and also the servant of sinners. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He broke bread to symbolize his breaking and being broken on the cross. 
It says, take, eat, do this in remember of me. And likewise, he took the cup. He says, take, drink. This is the cup of the new covenant. At Sojourn, we celebrate this great meal together each and every week to remind us of the brokenness that Christ has had and continues to have for us um, on that day. That he was broken, that he was crucified for the forgiveness and remission of our sins. Let that be our hope today and forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you. You are a good God. We thank you, God, that you are and you came to represent yourself, to represent your Father in heaven. You came and showed us the way, not just in word, but even in deed. And Father, for that, we say thank you. Thank you for being a faithful friend. Thank you for being a God of all peace. Thank you for God God of all patience. Father, I pray as we come to this table today that we will be reminded of the great peace that you provided us at the cross. Would you provide peace for weary souls even now? For those who are trying to be righteous without you, would you give them a place of rest now, looking to Jesus and being reminded of his finished work at the cross? And for those who are not being patient with themselves, maybe beating themselves up for mistakes, sins that have constantly happened in their lives, or sins that that, that so easily ensnared them, would you remind them of your great patience here at this table? Father, I thank you that you come for the weary and the broken, which we are in need of you. We are weary and we broken. Find us, Lord. Find us now and restore to us the joy of our salvation. Jesus, we thank you that you are God's true servant, the one who has come and served us well. Help Help us to serve one another well, even now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.